Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to another version of our podcast. Um, today, we have a very special guest. Uh, we have Lisa Lorenz in here to talk to us. Um, welcome, Lisa. Um, Thanks. It's really nice to talk with you. Brilliant. It's been a while, so it's been great. Um, but I'll kick off this podcast as I normally do, um, and I'll ask you kind of, how did you get into IT security and, and kind of how did your journey play out? Where did you kind of, how did you get to where you are today, really, I guess? A lot of luck and a lot of people helping me along the way. So not everyone knows this, but I have an undergraduate degree in medieval studies. I have no formal training in information technology or cybersecurity, but I was work study in college and I worked on the help desk. And I've got to say, starting out in tech support, I think is one of the best backgrounds. Again, it was total accident, but it really made me a systems thinker. It made me learn that when someone says, I need X, I need to ask why, you know, what problem are you really trying to solve? Okay, let's talk through how to get there. And when I got out of school, so I have this degree in medieval studies and I have a little bit of work experience in IT support. And I had to decide, do I go for a career in medieval studies and a hobby of computers? Or do I go for a career in computers and a hobby of medieval studies? And I like eating regularly. So I went for the career in computers and I got a job in tech support. And it was sort of that jump from helping people with, I can't print and, you know, I tried to do this on the Vax and it gave me this weird error to telephone support for Trumpet Winsock on Windows 3.1, if you, you know, roll back that far and talk about learning to troubleshoot. That's the other great thing is taking a particular behavior and gaming out what could cause this behavior. What, where do I start? What are some reasonable, you know, eliminate all of the reasonable possibilities before you start to get into the really arcane stuff. So. Um, then a quick succession of the tech support was for an internet ISP. I had a customer who actually hired me when that company went under to do web development. And I very quickly uh, decided I needed to be a sysadmin, keep working for these tiny little companies where my managers were very patient, would let me do anything I would volunteer to do, would overlook some of my more egregious errors, or better yet, educate me on what I did wrong and how to fix it. So in rapid succession, I went from a web server admin to doing system administration on the server itself, um, uh, old Unix servers, Sun OS. And then once you're doing server admin, you realize that that really requires some level of network administration. And the moment you touch network administration, you have to get into network security. So I bounced through all of those different areas, got into network security, and then realized that I was in my happy place. Because the neat thing about network security is it really is good for a generalist. I'm one of those people who is a dabbler. I don't want to pick one thing and go really deep into it. I want to understand all the different things that it's connected to, the larger picture. And so, quote unquote, network security isn't just about the network. It's about the network and the endpoints that connect to it and the data that traverses it and the people that are using it. And you really can touch almost any area. So I found that cybersecurity, which we called InfoSec back then, really just was a broad enough topic to keep me from getting bored. There was all of my life, all of my professional career, there has been three people's worth of work I want to do and only one of me to do it. And that has been my biggest problem. And it's been a lot of fun, but you know, sometimes it can be a challenge as well. So just really had a series of mentors. You know, I started out doing firewall and intrusion prevention work, and I was a systems engineer supporting a sales rep in a territory in two states. And the head of the solution architect team approached me and said, you should come join the solution architects team. And I said, you, you've got the wrong person. That's where the wizards are. And he said, how do you think you become a wizard? You know, I believe that you can do this. We're going to teach you how. So then I was a solution architect. By this point, let's see, I was at NetScreen in 03. We got bought by Juniper in 04. Right in that time frame, we also bought NeoTerrace, the SSL VPN company. So I'd been doing firewall and IPsec VPNs. And SSL VPN was a huge paradigm shift because all of a sudden, 
we could make it easier to distribute. We could make it easier for users. And then I did that and it evolved into the policy engine for our NAC solution. We bought another company that did 802.1x supplicant a radius server. And uh, you know, these, these areas keep expanding. The toys I can play with get more and more interesting. And I was there about 10 years, and then we were spun off as Pulse Secure doing VPN network access control, um, secure user access to resources. And whether that was remote or on-premise, but primarily focused on protecting internal resources. So really strong focus on the network. Juniper at one point did a cloud center of excellence. And this whole nascent cloud computing trend, I thought it was BS, right? <laughs> because what I was seeing was that people were virtualizing existing appliances and running them on somebody else's infrastructure. And as far as I was concerned, you were just moving your security problems to a rack you couldn't reboot. So I have to admit, I was pretty rude about this for a number of years, honestly, until I up and joined Zscaler, which was a cloud security company. And then I ate a whole bunch of crow from all of my friends who were like, um, wait, excuse me, you're going to do what now? But what I learned at Zscaler was the power of leveraging a cloud infrastructure is not only that it's distributed and elastic and resilient, it is that you can take advantage of that architecture to solve problems that are really hard to solve at a local scale. Whether that is, you know, Zscaler was a proxy company. I knew squat about proxies. I had so much to learn. I went and took the AWS um, Cloud Certified Practitioner, the, the 101 course, just to learn the terminology. That's a great class if you're really, you know, probably nobody starts out now not knowing about cloud, but it was exactly what I needed. But what we realized was if you can take that same concept, we're going to take the stack of appliances processing your outbound traffic and virtualize all those functions, run them in a distributed architecture at scale, at wire speed, and take all of the troubleshooting out of this disparate setups and stacks and redundancy that is expensive to build, it's expensive to maintain, it's expensive to upgrade, and put it into that centralized solution. It does have its own disadvantages. You know, one of them is visibility. If you're going to do that, you have to partner with somebody who can give you the kind of visibility that you would have locally. And to be honest, that took a while to get up to speed. But once you have a mature solution, then you can take that and turn it around. We actually, the private access solution came from that, where people came to us and said, okay, you're handling all our outbound traffic. Now, how do we solve this problem of users coming inbound? And that was my wheelhouse, right? That is VPN and NAC. So can we get the same set of advantages for an entirely different problem space? And it had different challenges, but we got to a point where all the things that I've been pounding my head against for literally, in some cases, decades, going back to client to gateway IPsec VPN distribution, full mesh IPsec VPN negotiation and setup. I had done a bunch of standards work around uh, with the trusted computing group and with IETF around secure attestation, around trusted network communications. And there were just a lot of, a lot of problems that you could more easily tackle in the cloud while the challenges that the cloud introduced were at that point, because I came late to it pretty well understood. So I was not an early adopter of cloud by any means. I let other people bleed on it. And then once the problem space was pretty well understood, then we could start to say, okay, how do we use this to our advantage? And here's the known caveats that we're going to have to work around or address. So that's how I got where it was. Okay, so before we get into tech, I'm going to ask you a question that no doubt you've been asked thousands of times. And I've I've never asked you this question before, even though we've talked before. But I come from, I mean, in the UK, there's very few women in tech. I would go to training courses in the past 25 years. And if there was a, a woman in the room, it would be a shock. It, I think it's more prevalent in the US. Um, but how is it? How is that affected your journey? Has it affected your journey? I mean, I don't like to necessarily call it women in tech. I think we're all technological based people. 
But I, I, I've got to ask you the question. I'd be re- remiss not to. Well, and let's expand the area. I can talk to being a woman in tech, but realistically, it's any underrepresented minority in tech. So that could be a woman. It could be, you know, a person of color. It could be a person, you know, a gay person. It could be a disabled a person with a disability. There's all sorts of different challenges, structural challenges that, frankly, if you're not white and male, there's a little more challenge, but I believe there's also a little more opportunity. And let me unpack that. Yeah. Okay. I encountered some of the usual biases. Very early on in my career, I was a systems engineer. I walked to a meeting and they assumed I was a marketing person and asked me to get coffee. I don't even drink coffee. They would not have enjoyed what would have come out of that. Unfortunately, the guy next to me, the sales rep said, oh, excuse me, let me introduce my engineer. So that's one of the biggest um, benefits is realizing how many people are willing to acknowledge this and to help try to address some of these incorrect assumptions. I think that there are areas where I've been really fortunate. I've never worked in programming. I've never worked in product management. I think those areas of tech are much more structurally biased towards the status quo and frankly, much harder to break through some of those assumptions. So I would say that I've done woman in tech on easy mode, but I also think that there have been a few advantages. One of them is, you know, the talking monkey effect. I'll walk into a room and people won't expect that I am as technical as I am. So I stand up in front of a whiteboard and somebody who would normally be zoned out is like, wait, what's she going to do? You know, and then it gets their attention or, you know, invite somebody to lunch and they might not want to go with the sales guy, but they'll go talk to me because they're trying to figure out how the heck I got here in the first place. So there's that advantage. I also think there's an advantage of, I have a little bit of an option to opt out of some of the pissing matches around status. And I'm sure you've seen this, where four guys in the tech area walk into a room, and one of the first things they have to do is establish dominance. You know, what's the pecking order in that crowd? And I can choose to opt into that if I need to make a point, which I did a lot more early in my career than I do now, frankly, because I felt like I had to. But it also means that I can ask a question without worrying about whether I'm going to lose status or drop in that pecking order. And I really firmly believe that that's a superpower. There is a wonderful blog post about the importance of asking dumb questions titled Dumber Than Socrates by someone I admire deeply, Meredith Patterson. And the point in that post is in the Socratic dialogues, you've got Socrates and he teaches by answering questions. And there's two kinds of people questioning him. There's the know-it-all jerk who's challenging him and Socrates gets to put this guy in his place. But then there is the uninformed learner who is looking for education. And so this is the foil to ask Socrates the question that Socrates then gets to expound on whatever topic. And I've learned if somebody's talking about something and I have a question, I am probably not the only one in the room with that question. But there are a ton of reasons why people aren't going to ask it, right? They don't want to look stupid. They don't want to lose face. They don't want to seem like they weren't paying attention. They think they should know it and they don't. All of my career, I have asked the dumb questions. And it has rarely, rarely been the wrong thing to do. It makes friends. It helps pull unspoken assumptions into the light. It makes me smarter. It helps me make the people around me smarter. So I think that being female sometimes gives me more space to do that. And the the last thing I'll mention is I realized kind of, you know, a few years ago that I'm now in a position where I can represent potential to women who are earlier in their career. And I, it's, it's hilarious to me because I've never been a career-oriented person. I've never had career goals. I've never tried to climb a career ladder. I've never looked at you know, what to do next in my career. But there are people who look at me and say, how did you get where you were and what lessons can we learn from that? Because those are their goals. And so now one of the things I'm trying to do is reach out to, again, 
anyone, but particularly underrepresented minorities and share some of what I've learned with the knowledge that it doesn't work for everybody. And I've been incredibly fortunate in what I've been able to do, but to sort of pass that along. So a little bit long-winded, I apologize, but I hope that's what you were getting at. Um, one of the questions I have is how do we encourage, you say, hiring managers, uh, you know, technical people running teams, how do we encourage them to embrace more diversity within their teams? Um, I, I, I think there are advantages to it, but I don't want to go into it. I kind of want to hear your thoughts on it. But how do we increase uh, people saying, hey, I want to bring on a woman, I want to bring on a person of color or somebody who doesn't in your case, um, have that classical uh, IT, you know, degree in the, you know, you're medieval, I got political science back in the day. Um, how do we encourage that within a team? That's a legit hard question, because if you have a team of, and I'm just going to hit every trope I can think of, shoegazing nerds who all play World of Warcraft on the weekend and go to the same movies, and you want to introduce more diversity, hey, it's going to make your job harder as a manager at first because you have to figure out how to integrate that person. And B, there may be some resistance. But I think it's incredibly important because if everyone on the team looks the same and thinks the same, then you've got a very limited mindset. So how you tackle that, I think, number one, the, the tech industry is terrible about promoting people who are incredibly strong technologists into a management position and just expecting them to magically be good managers. Management is a damn skill and it's a discipline and we need to be supporting our managers better and giving them good examples of how to do it. Don't just throw somebody at them and say, congratulations, you must hire your first woman and oh, go figure out how to integrate them in. You wouldn't do that with, we just handed you your first IPS, figure it out how to integrate it into the network with no manual. Why the hell do we think we can do that with people? So I think that supporting and educating managers on, and, and everybody else on the team, yes, you are going to have to stop speaking entirely in references to your shared TV show. Yes, this person is going to question how you do things and you have to figure out not how to get your hackles up, but to actually have a dialogue about it. The other problem is, you know, frankly, what's called the pipeline problem, which is how do you find those people? We struggled with that incredibly at, you know, at Zscaler, at Pulse, at Juniper. We would like to hire more women in tech. There aren't a lot to hire. You know, we literally had a panel at a B-Sides one time about unicorns because it's so hard to find someone in that space. And I think that bringing early career people on, not expecting people to walk in the door fitting your exact job description maybe, but hiring for aptitude and open-mindedness and enthusiasm rather than domain knowledge. You can teach domain knowledge. Aptitude, I will take someone with a good attitude and zero background over somebody with 10 years of experience who is close-minded to learning new things any day. And finally, too, I think that not just having these diversity initiatives paying lip service, but really having people at a high level be diverse, having your executive team not just have the token CMO, right? You look at a lot of these technical companies and the only high level women are in finance or people in culture, HR, whatever you want to call it, really bringing and building uh, diverse strengths within and then promoting those people into positions where they can help to shape that culture. So it's not just, it, it doesn't help to have diverse hiring effects if you have a monoculture in the top three or top five executive team. Yeah, I, I have to admit, um, obviously over the years, I've tried to hire diverse employees from wh wherever they may come from and trying to, the, the cultural element within the team, trying to get those people to fit in has been a challenge as a manager. But equally, having that diverse mindset thinking approach, especially in a, in a kind of area where you're troubleshooting, you're looking at problems, you're doing projects, if everyone thinks in the same way, you're going to end up walking the same path and coming to the same conclusion. You need that diversity. Um, otherwise, 
you're in trouble. And it has been hard for me to hire particularly women because there aren't that many in the field that we work in. But one of Build them. Go find a woman who's just out of college who's interested and commit to investing in her. I would not be where I am if people hadn't hired me for jobs that I was demonstrably unqualified for on paper. But I said, I'm a quick learner. I have related background in another area and I will work my butt off. I I think, you know, put me in, coach. I think that, that within cyber, because it's a relatively new environment, I think it's easier because no one's got that experience. So it's easier. The pool's wider. There are more diversity. There's more people. Um, And I definitely think it is changing. Um, But unfortunately, it seems to be taking too long. And the culture side that you mentioned is really important, too. One of the great things that came out of the pandemic, you know, it was it has been a horrible two and a half years with shining bright spots of good things that came out of it. And one of those was our team, my global team, there were, you know, probably 20 to 30 of us at any given time. And the head of our team said, every other week, we're going to have a team meeting and do administrative stuff and have a bullet agenda and talk through deliverable, blah, blah, blah. And in the off weeks, in the same time slot, we're going to have a team social and we're going to assign two leads for each. And you've got to come up with some team idea. We did a cookbook. We did a ton of different cahoots. We did put up the Halloween pictures and everybody gets to guess what your costume is. We did what's your favorite music? You know, what's your first concert? And oh my gosh, we learned so much about each other. And it really brought us together as a team. It made us appreciate each other's different perspectives. And she carved out that time. She said, you know, it is important to us. We're going to do this. We, I want you to prioritize this. Don't let people schedule things on top of it. And I, I honestly think that I, you know, now I live in North Carolina. I work for a California company on a global team. So we didn't have, you know, we would get together at conferences. We would have an offsite once or twice a year. But with those biweekly team social events, I learned more and felt closer to the rest of my team than I had in the three years prior to that. There are steps that you can take, but you have to recognize that it's necessary first. I think, you know, some groups have just forgotten about it. They've just been focused on, hey, we need to get the job done. We have this distributed workforce. We don't meet up. Everyone works, you know, all four points of the the continent here. And um, that factor, that human factor has just been kind of missed. And I've seen it, uh, the former place I worked with. Um they had a gap there and, and the culture declined and, you know, now they're trying to build it up, but that piece is, is incredibly important. So, um, you know, your point well taken and uh, managers out there, listen up, you, you've got to work the human side as well. I think also that the shift to virtual during the pandemic has been incredibly enabling for people with disabilities, people who can't as easily travel, people with social anxiety, and I hope that the accommodations that we've put in place to keep each other safe are going to be extended to that community that really, you know, it's like in-person versus remote schooling. Sent all the kids home. It was hugely disruptive. And I don't have children, but I have two good friends who are school teachers, so I get an earful. And there were some kids who thrived. There were some kids who struggled. Now they're coming back into the classroom And the kids who were struggling are doing great, but the kids who thrived in the virtual environment are now being pulled back into an environment that was less good for them. How do we find that balance within the workforce as well? There will always be people for whom a virtual environment is more accessible or more comfortable. Let's not throw away all of that. It, It would be almost cruel to give them a couple years of this where they could be a fully participating member of the group and then say, oh, by the way, we're just going back to normal, whatever that means. Let's expand our definition of normal to include those folks too. So I, I've I've mentioned this on other podcasts and, and one of the main reasons I kind of switched from what I was doing to what I do now was because I've always cared about people and I've always cared about fixing problems. And I tried to, or I'm trying to, take my experience 
and help people in this new kind of hybrid world that we work in because i don't think we will ever go back to the way we were and and i i i, I think what you've just said is perfectly right but if we talk a little bit about tech for a while i, I there's all this noise of zero trust sassy sse and part of the reason why we kind of founded this forum was because myself and john have both worked in the industry long enough to know that all these acronyms and, and all this stuff that's floating around and what does it all mean and we're trying to just help people who were walking the path that we once walked to understand because the board of directors now are pushing down and saying we want a casby we want this we want that we want this the industry is moving so fast in the pandemic meant that it's been very hard for teams to keep up. So much stuff's kind of gone to the cloud and it hasn't necessarily been done securely or as slow as it would have normally have been. It was a bit more of a rush. So I'd be certainly interested in, and I know I, I know what kind of answer I think I'm going to get to this, but I'd be really interested in like what you think about the whole zero trust, SASE, SSE and, and all of that stuff. How do you feel about those things? I'm pretty sure you've heard me rant about this before. Um, first of all, I personally dislike the term zero trust because I feel like it's the wrong focus. We have to trust. We have to extend trust. It is zero implicit trust. So we need to not trust blindly, but it's really about establishing trust. What do we need to establish trust? What do we need trust in? What do we need trust for? What can we enable based on that trust? So it's a great buzzword, that's fine. It has really expanded a conversation that needed to happen. I also think that the concept of zero trust has evolved since its introduction. If you look back at the original No More Chewy Centers white paper that kicked off this whole thing, I mean, that's a great model when you think about it. It's, it's terrific when your focus is protecting a data center. You've got the hard candy shell around the outside and the soft interior like an M&M or a Skittles. And you put all of the controls at the edge, but then once you're inside that edge, you can go anywhere. So the problem that Zero Trust was introduced to solve was that soft interior. We have to figure out now what that looks like, as you mentioned, when things have moved to the cloud. Cloud and mobility really blew up that model. I don't. I no longer only have those problems when a user is on campus connecting to a resource in the data center. And it, I think, really freed people to see that whether you are an on-premise user accessing an internal resource, whether you're an on-premise user accessing an external site that may be malicious, or you're a remote user who needs to get into private resources, whether they're in a data center or in software as a service, infrastructure as a service, even platform as a service, or you're that remote user going to external sites. All of these are aspects of the same problem. And Jim French, who was one of the solution architects at Zscaler, has a great article on that on LinkedIn and a nice two by two expressing it. The reality is that zero trust has tradition or initially was initially only focused on one of those four areas, right? On-premise user accessing internal resources, but the concepts apply to all of those areas. So if we can start by, let's talk about what zero trust means to you. What problems are you trying to solve today? What is the priority order of solving those problems? Are we talking about protecting a network? But the network isn't really the thing I care about. It's the data that is on that network. But the data isn't really the thing I care about. It's the access to that data by the user. But the access isn't really the thing I care about. It's the user's ability to do their damn job. Now we're getting somewhere. So now let's walk backwards through that and say, not just what controls are necessary at each of those levels, but what can we enable by protecting each of those levels? So I believe that the concept of zero trust can really be used as a focus and in some cases a forcing function for the transformation of security from that original world where all the assets were in the data center and all the users 
were primarily on-premise. You know, rem- when I started out, remote users were a re- vast minority. And now, especially coming through the pandemic, that's completely flipped on its head. So let's talk about how security has to transform. And companies can use the zero trust conversation to structure that process. Then, then now we get into the other two acronyms you mentioned, SASE and SSE. And that is really talking about what's in the sandbox. What is the sandbox, right? What are we concerned with? So SASE, the whole idea of the secure access service edge, trying to combine transport and you know, the protection itself, that was an interesting paradigm because it made people recognize that you can't really look at network connectivity separately from network security. But I think I agree with the shift away from SASE to SSE because the evolution is different in those two areas. How you connect to the resource is different from how you protect that connection. So on the one hand, you know, Gartner seems to introduce a new acronym like clockwork every 12 to 18 months, I think, you know, to force people to stay interested. And to be fair, also because new areas and solutions are arising so quickly in the tech industry. And I think it's really easy to get lost in the buzzwords. I don't tend to walk into a conversation, or I didn't, and start talking about SASE and SSE. I walked into a conversation and started talking about what you need to protect and what you're trying to accomplish. But if the customer or the prospect had a background in SASE and SSE, that gave us a shared language and a shared context for what we were trying to solve. Let's talk about what piece is this. And then, you know, context is also the key to trust. What context do we have? What context do we need? Do we have enough context to make a decision? If we don't, how do we get more context involved? So that's a huge playing field. I think zero trust being applied in either the SASE or the SSE paradigm really means you have to find ways to expand your clue level, your knowledge base. And there's a number of ways to do that. There's self-education, but nobody wants to reinvent the wheel every time. So then you look at crowdsourcing. Can you find a community, like you mentioned, Jay, of people who've gone through this or are going through this, and you want to talk to other people who are further down the path to learn from them? You want to talk to people who are earlier in their journey to pass along what you've learned. So creating community forums, finding areas. We used to do this at conferences. The hallway track at RSA was absolutely as interesting to me as any of the actual presentations, right? I went to RSA for years for the conversations I had on the expo floor, the conversations I had in the hall, the one-on-one conversations in conference rooms. And okay, if I have time to go to a few talks, here's the three must-attend talks, but these are my critical conversations. Then the other piece of that is you can choose to go it alone from an implementation standpoint. You can pick and choose and buy a best of breed point solution over here and a best of breed point solution over there and try to put them together. And you can succeed that way, but it's a lot of work. And very often those interface points are opportunities for misconfiguration, opportunities for gaps. So I am I am not a fan of end-to-end vendor lock-in. I think that that lends itself to abuse. But I am a fan of finding a per- vendor with a mature, proven solution that you can choose from a buffet of options. I need to solve these three problems immediately. Okay, now we've gotten through that phase of our zero trust journey. Then I need to extend into this area. And if I can do that by enabling a feature in something I already have, rather than buying an entirely new box and trying to figure out how to fit it in. If I can have a similar model for handling my outbound traffic as well as my private traffic, if I can have a similar model for protecting users on desktop and mobile, if I can have a similar model for users that are literally physically in a corporate network on-premise versus connecting to a corporate network without being in the building, then it takes away some of the friction of moving through these areas. So I believe that that move towards zero trust 
comes with a lot of opportunity to streamline and simplify some of the problems that we've been trying to tackle for decades. But I think it also is really difficult to do in a vacuum and that taking advantage of the resources in the community and the resources from the people who are providing the technologies is absolutely critical for success. But I'm biased because I was my entire focus was helping prospects and customers understand what those resources were and how to take advantage of them. So it comes from my background. Kind of give us an update. Uh, what are you up to now? You, you've famously left uh, your, your previous employer and uh, uh, there was a nice, you know, uh, LinkedIn post about that. But uh, let's talk about what you're doing now. Well, I was that LinkedIn post, I was really surprised at how widely that was shared and how many people responded to it. I mean, so I'd been writing little articles and posts and whatever we did. A, we had a Zero Trust podcast at Zscaler that we would promote on LinkedIn. The the post where I said, I'm stepping away from tech and here's why I got an order of magnitude, more pickup, more visibility than anything I wrote in the thought leadership space, which, you know, really tells me that a lot of people were probably in the same place, right? So I had the incredible luxury of being in a position financially and personally that when I felt I'd reached a certain period, certain level of burnout, I could walk away. And I recognize how incredibly fortunate I am that that's super rare. Part of it is, you know, 20 some years of working from North Carolina for California company. Part of it is having hobbies that are, you know, expensive to start up, but I've been using the same gear for 20 years. We're actually in that phase of, wow, this tent is literally 15 years old and you can only seam seal it so many times. Maybe we could buy a new one. Cause a, a, a lot of what I did on, in my free time was outdoors, climbing, caving, rappelling, mountain biking, hiking, you know, for a while paddling, although uh, I had a bad experience on a river and decided that I wanted to do something less likely to kill me. Um, <laughs> so I would say that what I am doing now is trying to figure out who I am when my life doesn't revolve around cybersecurity and zero trust. I'm decompressing and and you don't realize how far underwater you are until you start to try to come up to the surface. I've been, it's taking longer than I expected. You know, I really kind of crawled into this lovely little routine where, you know, we would do stuff around the house. We would go to the farmer's market on Saturday morning. We would mountain bike on Sunday morning. We would go out in the middle of the week to climb or cave. I've been spending a lot of time reconnecting with friends that I haven't talked to, getting on Zooms with folks, having people over to eat on the back deck, you know, meeting them outdoors at restaurants. Um, I talked to my mother every night. I mean, that wasn't after I left. I started that during the pandemic. I was 50 to 80% travel for 20 years. And then my husband now, and my husband and I, we would get in the car and go road trip to go climbing on the weekends or caving or whatever, repelling. And so I would see my mom, my surviving parent, you know, maybe three or four times a year. Now I talk to her six nights a week. And I talk to my sister once a week. You know, she's really busy. She's a paramedic. She's engaged. She's got a lot going on. I'm more connected with them than I have been in decades. I am starting to obviously have some of these conversations. You know, I'm doing a little bit of mentoring. Um, I would like to get more involved in that giving back space. I'm trying to figure out what that's going to look like. But I also realized that I really needed to take a break. And I, I again, you know, like I said, my biggest problem has been I, there are more things I want to do than I have bandwidth for. And that's a bad combination with an industry that wants to wring every single drop of productivity out of you. So when the pandemic started, I quite literally went from, I was at the high end of my travel, four or five days a week on the road, and then we would jump in the car on the weekends to shelter in place. And that first month, that was not fun. I'm my my husband would have been completely justified in burying my body somewhere in the backyard because I was squirrely as hell. I have ADHD. All of my coping mechanisms were structured around travel. Didn't know what to do with myself. Just really struggled. And 
part of that then was adapting to the new paradigm. You know, when you're getting on a plane and going to three different cities in a week and having four meetings a day, it's very well defined what you can do. I would work on the, I would have meetings and then on the plane, I would do write-ups and deliverables and follow-ups. Now I'm home. And well, you know, the company is like, well, you're not traveling. So you have all that, all, all this much more time to do stuff. And because I was customer facing, you know, plus all of the internal initiatives that I really cared about and really wanted to be involved in, I would get to a point where I would have six or seven or eight hours of Zoom a day on my calendar. And that is completely unsustainable, utterly. It is not reasonable, but I didn't know that, right? So I had to learn to carve out, I'm going to put a half hour for lunch in my calendar and I'll move it around, but I won't schedule over it. I had to put, I realized that long about 3.30, 4 o'clock, my brain was melting down. I could not focus. I couldn't get anything done. So I put a half an hour walk, no devices, take a mile walk around the neighborhood, rain or shine. And again, I put it on my calendar in the afternoon. I would shift it around, but I would not schedule over it because I learned the hard way that when I did, my brain just became unmanageable. I had to put, then as you know, more people realize our team exists, as our teams grows and our team's visibility grew, I had to put an hour a day for no Zoom just to keep up with email and follow-ups and all the things that need to come after a meeting. You know, you don't just have a call. You have a call and then you have the things that come out of the call, let alone write a paper, write an article, review a document, you know, critique an outline, whatever. So I started putting blocks of time for deliverables. And I think the thing I learned was that I had to set my own boundaries to make myself productive, to protect my ability to be productive because nobody else was going to do that for me. And it was really difficult because I didn't have that, that muscle. I had to develop that skill set. And I, I also think, frankly, there are a lot of people who aren't willing to set it down and walk away at the end of the day. I mean, your employer doesn't own you. They're just renting. <laughs> and, you know, they need to not abuse the terms of that rental agreement. And the tech industry is rife with this. You know, we're a startup. We're going to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. All everyone around me is doing it. If I don't do it, I'm putting an undue load on my coworkers. There are real pressures to work at a pace that is extremely unsustainable. So I figured out these self-care things that I needed. I, I get exercise, I get sleep, I take breaks, and I still got so far underwater I couldn't find the surface. And so that's the really critical thing is self-care only takes you so far in an environment of systemic overload. And it's not just overwork, it's everything. It's the pandemic and the social craziness and the climate crisis. And we are living through a time where there's a lot of existential angst, you know, and terror. And I can't just, you know, I can ignore that. Absolutely. I don't think about this every day, every hour, but every so often I wake up at 4am and I can't sleep because what the hell are we doing? And, and I really got to a point where I felt like I was not able then to do the job that I loved and wanted to do at the level I wanted to do it. And I would say to anyone who's feeling that way, you are not alone. You are not wrong. You are not defective. There's only so much that you can do to protect yourself. This is not on you. We are all walking down this path together in our little bubbles of, well, I can't admit that I have this struggle because everybody else is fine, right? So we're all projecting, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And, and one of the biggest surprises to me was how many people messaged me privately on LinkedIn after I posted that and said, oh my God, I feel exactly the same way. You're so brave to talk about it. I am not brave. I'm done. <laughs> you know, I couldn't not. And I hope that it gave people an opportunity to really feel like they have the right to address this in their own lives. If, and again, I come back to if they have the ability to, because again, I know how lucky I am that I could take these steps and not everyone can, but I hope that it gave people a little more permission to acknowledge this in themselves and to do what they're able to do to address it. I, I think you raise some really interesting points. I mean, I, I read your LinkedIn post and, and the, having done work with you in the past, I know how dedicated you are and I know you want to bring your A game. And to read that post actually 
kind of took my breath away a little bit because I've felt like that in the past as well. And I think it maybe affects people, and I, I don't want to generalize, but I think people that want to be really, really successful maybe are the ones that suffer with burnout because they're the ones that keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going and then you and you don't realize but i i think the interesting point for me is when i've worked with u.s companies in the past the culture in the u.s seems to be don't take holidays don't take breaks don't take time off and i think we get viewed in europe from the u.s point of view is you're always on holiday and actually, I used to get forced to take holiday by the company and I used to get, lose bonuses or payments if my team didn't take holiday. So much so healthier. I, yeah. However, I still took my laptop on holiday with me for 25 years. Yeah. So it's really hard to disconnect in the IT world. And, and I think it's really good that people are starting to talk about it. And somebody like you is starting to talk about it because... I've always tried to explain it in a way that I know when I'm getting tired. I know when I need a break, I'll book a holiday, I'll go away, I'll recharge my battery. So I may have dropped from 100% to 80%. I go away, I recharge my batteries. I may not get back to 100%. None of us probably ever do. I might get back to 90 or 95%. Mm -hmm. But when I look at my colleagues in the US, throughout my whole career, it's almost like they go 100, 90, 80, 70, 60, 50, 40. They fall off of a cliff. Yeah. They have to take some time off. They may recharge their batteries and they may start the process again. And I think the culture globally needs to change in regards to people should know themselves better than anyone else. They should be able to take a step back and go, I really need a break because companies will not get the best out of you by constantly flogging you to the point where you're only able to do 20%. And they need to allow you a little bit of time. No, I completely agree with that. And part of this is on me also. I don't know how to stop. I don't know, or I don't know how to back off. If you yeah. give me a deliverable, I'm going to try to hit that deliverable. If you invite me to participate in something I care about, I'm going to say yes. And I really tried hard to find that balance. And I did it badly. I'm not good at it. People said, you know, you could take a sabbatical. You could, you know, possibly do three days. I can't do three days a week. I can't turn off that part of my brain for two days. And, not, you know, it, it, the one of the best things about the things we did on the weekends, the climbing and the caving, the repelling, was that I couldn't take devices. Like, you know, they were how I got away. And it, and it was enforced. And I think that I would hope that other people have better ability to balance than I do, better coping mechanisms than I did. But it, at some point, I came to the realization that that this is not something I could put off any longer, that this wasn't something I could keep doing. And, and a, a large part of that is my nature. So I, I think a lot of people in the area we work in are very similar, and maybe that's why we're drawn in. But I mean, I... I actually took up karate. Yeah. Because yes. if I was cycling or swimming or jogging, I still think about work. If I thought about work when I was doing karate, it usually hurt because somebody punched me or kicked me. That's glorious. So <laughs> it was the. It, I tried kickboxing or, and things like that, but I ended up with karate because I'm like, I can't think about work. I need to concentrate when someone's swinging legs or feet at me, right? Or, or their yeah. fists. Well, and the other part of it was too, I loved what I did. I wanted to be involved. We we have been for the past 20 years going through some of the biggest shifts in how people communicate and how people do work. The pandemic accelerated the move to cloud. It accelerated mobility. It exposed these fault lines. It was such a challenge, but it also brought the opportunity to rethink how we work and what we do to apply these principles that maybe didn't take off the first time around like zero trust, but now have so much more relevance if we think about them in context of today's challenges. And I still believe that. I still believe that there's an incredible amount of necessary and fascinating and compelling work to be done there. And I think that there's 
an incredible number of people who are working in that space, sharing information, making connections. And I miss my team. I miss the, the delight in walking into a conversation and watching somebody wrap their head around a new concept to them, learning something new. Every customer call I had, I learned something new. One of the biggest challenges for me is how do I keep myself interested? You know, how do I, what can I do to fill that need in myself when I'm no longer engaging with different people every day? And I think, you know, I, I kind of, again, withdrew from everybody because I needed a break from it, but I want to get more involved in mentoring, in sharing information, in, you know, conversations like this because I don't want to just flush all of that interaction because I burned out on it, you know? So figuring out that's my project for the next few years is how, how far can I participate without getting sucked back in, in a way that I'm not controlling? Well, that's, yeah. that's my challenge is, okay. I've had, I took the rest of the summer off. It, it has really felt like a sabbatical, you know, like I'm taking a break. What does coming back look like? I don't want to come back and work in that space anymore. And I have the luxury of not, but I want to come back and contribute to that space. And, and how do I do that? Yeah, I mean, I think we're coming up to possibly the longest podcast we've ever done. Sorry. Um, no, it's, it's been absolutely amazing. Um, I can't thank you enough for coming along. And like I said, we've done stuff in the past together, but it's always great to speak to you. We'd love to have you on again at some point in the future. I really hope your own transformational journey kind of works out the way you want. And I'm, and I'm sure however you dip your toes into the water of what we're doing, you're going to be valued. I mean, you've got a lot you can help people with. You've got experience, I think, being a mentor and a coach to the younger generation or even to people that are just a little bit lost on the path. I think you can definitely add value. So I really appreciate you coming on. Well, I'm honored to be here. And I think your podcast is one of these forums where people are sharing information and where folks can come to get that kind of knowledge. So thank you for doing what you're doing. And I'll be interested to follow it and see who else is here and what else I can learn from them. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the SSE Forum. Editing and post-production is provided by John Spiegel. Sound engineering is expertly conducted by Chris Danby. Food recommendations? Solely the territory of Jay Tilson. Thanks for listening, and give us a follow on LinkedIn, as well as on Twitter. Twitter.